the the intrigue of epigenetics is that there is some sense of control there. We do know that it's impacted by lifestyle factors. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. Welcome to CPR for Life, everyone. I often meet people who think they are screwed because of their family history. They say things like, everyone in my family dies early from heart disease, so why shouldn't I just enjoy my Big Mac and cigarettes? They feel powerless against their genetic destiny. Today's guest is going to help us realize that we have much more control of this destiny than we might think, both for ourselves and maybe even for our kids. He's an incredibly smart guy, using his knowledge to help improve lives, particularly those of children. But before I introduce him and we start talking to him, I wanted to give a little bit more of an introduction to epigenetics because probably most people haven't heard of it. It's relatively new, only been around for about 40 plus years. And we'll go into exactly what it is for when we talk to our guests. But before that, I just wanted to give some examples of what it means. Some cool examples of epigenetics playing a role are that fruit flies, will change the shape of their bodies and their wings in response to different environmental factors like temperature. These epigenetic changes can even be passed down to children. There was an unfortunate time called the Dutch Hunger Winter during World War II, where Germany cut off food to the Netherlands. And so people were starving, including pregnant women. They were malnourished. And so the children who were born had a much higher risk of developing obesity and other metabolic diseases because that malnutrition changed expression in genes. And then literature is showing that there are relationships between how genes are expressed and things like high blood pressure, aging, diabetes, high cholesterol. For example, there have been discoveries of certain genes that when epigenetically changed affect how atherosclerosis develops. That's the plaque inside the blood vessels that can lead to heart attacks. It can also change how high your cholesterol levels are. There's another example, chronic stress, particularly traumatic stress, can alter the expression of genes and can make a person even more sensitive to stress. It's like a vicious loop. And of course, everything's connected to everything. And one example of that is that stress can alter the microbiome. And then the resulting changes in what those bacteria in the gut produce can change gene expression. So after that, I really do need to mention two things. Number one, take the CPR stress course. You'll find it at cprhealthclinic.com stress. And two, eat your vegetables and your fruits and your whole grains and your legumes. Anyway, that's enough of my long introduction to the topic. Let's get to our guest. Dr. Shamul Chowdhury is a board-certified clinical molecular geneticist who's also the vice president of lab operations for Clear Note Health and also works closely with the Rady Children's Institute. 
for genomic medicine. Additionally, he's a researcher with many peer-reviewed publications. Welcome, Dr. Chowdhury. Thanks, Sagar. Thanks for having me. So tell us, Shimul, what's your background? How did you get into genetics? What do you do? I've always had a lot of interest in genetics from an early age, even just working in laboratories. The first lab I was in was a genetics lab where they were looking at DNA and making diagnoses of genetic diseases from the tests that they were running in the laboratories. So my career has really been focused on genetics and epigenetics, what we'll be talking about today and its impact on human health. And kind of the role that I have is I, I have a PhD background, so I've spent a lot of time in the lab, but really trying to be a bridge between the laboratory and physicians and clinical practice. So taking some of these technologies to look at genetics and epigenetics, how we can use them to improve human health, either through diagnosis or risk prediction, things like that, and trying to take some of this com these complex scientific concepts and make it understandable for physicians and for patients. So I've been involved in developing multiple tests that are used clinically now, talk to a lot of different physicians and been part of different clinical studies to make sure we're doing it responsibly and doing it right. So yeah, it, it's been a passion of mine for a long time and been able to apply it into pediatric setting as well as in the adult oncology setting that I'm sure we'll touch base on a little bit as, as the podcast goes along. So yeah, it's an exciting concept, exciting uh, field. And so yeah, I'm very excited to talk more about it. Yeah. And as people learn what the genetics, epigenetics is, I think they'll get more excited too. But first question for you, I ask everybody, what's your definition of health? Oh, that's a good question. My definition of health is being in balance in all aspects of your life. I guess that's physical is a big part of it, mental, social, spiritual, and they all play off of each other. And yeah, I think they all can influence each other. So trying to to maintain a balance of that is, I think, something we're all trying to strive for. Yeah, I would agree with that. So tell me now, take us into epigenetics. First off, describing what the old paradigm of just genetics is or used to be and how epigenetics adds to that. Yes. So I would think of it this way for folks. Again, people may or may not be aware of just like the fundamentals of genetics. We have these four letters that are our genetic code, ACs, Ts, and Gs. And we have three billion letters, pairs of letters in our DNA sequence. And that's code. Yeah. And that's the code of life. So these strings of letters code for genes, which code for proteins that do all the functions of our body help develop our organs, determine our appearance, things like that. And we have these trillions of cells in our bodies that all have the same DNA, right? The same genetic code, but obviously they do different things. They have different functions. And one of the main reasons for that is the epigenetic side of things. So epi, like the prefix of it, the EPI part literally means on top. So upon the DNA. And so what is happening in epigenetics is basically you have these modifications that are happening on top of the DNA sequence that impact the expression of genes. And one example of that is methylation. And so methylation is you have a methyl group that occurs on top of a particular DNA sequence where there's a C and a G. 
Many of them have a methylation group on top of it. And what that can do, right, is if you have a methylation group, it can prevent other proteins from binding to it. Uh, and so it could impact in expression. But if you took one of those methyl groups away, it could mean that proteins could bind to that particular region uh, of the genome. And so, again, having the presence or not having the presence of these methylation markers can mean, is this gene turned on or is this gene turned off? And so that can, again, impact the expression of the gene and downstream potentially leading to a, to a particular disease or a particular condition. And, and so, yeah, that's a little bit of the fundamentals of the distinguishing between genetics and uh, epigenetics and obviously more to unpack there, but just the way to think about it is epigenetics is something that's happening on top of the DNA. It's not changing your DNA sequence, but it's impacting these other processes in terms of that region of the genome. All right. So we've got 3 billion base pairs, these coded chemicals coming together, tons of DNA information, but in order to make the function of each cell different, these things come on top and you gave one example of methylation, but well, how, how do these things even get there to begin with? And how do we know, or how does your body know where to put them and where to take them off of? Yeah. So that's a good question. And our marks in methylation actually help their form very early in development when we're through embryogenesis and as we're developing, developing through childbirth. And again, there's like the, the pattern of methylation. That's the the steady state that's needed for development. It's again, providing the gene expression that basically distinguishes these cells are going to develop into the heart. These cells are going to develop into the brain. Again, providing those markers to influence the expression of genes. And then, again, one of the interesting things about methylation and epigenetics is that they, they can change through time and they can be influenced by different lifestyle factors. And there's been many studies that have shown actually what happens from the maternal diet and the maternal behavior can influence the methylation marks of the fetus, thinking that, again, these are the nutrients and the environment that, that the fetus is developing in. Again, part of it is programmed as part of development and becoming a human. And part of it is, again, influenced by different lifestyle factors that can occur. So that's what makes it an intriguing area of study because it's been studied in many different areas that we can go into a little bit. But they, yeah, these marks, again, can be influenced and they change through time. Oh, and it starts even that early in utero when baby's not even really formed yet, but the genetic code is still there. But if mom decides to follow a different lifestyle, different way of eating or different who knows what, then that's going to influence the genetic expression of that baby. Yeah, potentially. And one of the biggest impacts that some people may or may not be aware of that ties into methylation is the concept of folic acid during pregnancy. So basically in the 90s, there was these connections made to a depletion of folic acid leading to adverse outcomes for babies. So maternal intake of folic acid or the depletion of that uh, being associated with various birth defects. And one of the main uh, roles of folic acid is actually in the methylation pathway. So what's actually happened and people don't realize it is that the food supply has been fortified with folic acid, different 
cereals and grains and things that you buy are actually fortified with folic acid to help based off of the data showing that it improves human health and improves outcomes in pregnancies. And then there's, there's recommendations in terms of folic acid intake for mothers. And again, the impact being that folic acid is actually involved in the pathway involved in the generation of these methyl groups and the maintenance of these methyl groups that are impacting expression. So it, it really helps, again, trying to ensure that you're in this steady state for, for the development and the regular development of, of during organogenesis and the embryology of humans. Wow. Yeah, I can say that probably every pregnant mother and father, that is, has heard about the folic acid thing, get plenty of folic acid, and realize that has some tie to not having birth defects. But I definitely didn't realize that was an epigenetic tie right there. And that if you can't methylate the right things, then you're going to have deformities or stillbirths, terminated pregnancies, whatnot. What are some other examples of how we can see epigenetics play out um, either in utero or after? Yeah, so there's there's been so many studies and so much literature in terms of epigenetics and human health. Probably one of the most studied body of literature is epigenetics and cancer. There, there are a lot of studies showing that we have genes that are called tumor suppressor genes. So they're trying to make sure cells don't divide out of control, which ultimately can lead to tumorigenesis. And again, you can imagine if you have a gene that's methylated, one of these tumor suppressor genes, and if you lose methylation at that gene, then the gene is getting turned on, right? A lot of things can bind to it. And if you are, you're not suppressing the right genes, or if you're overactivating the wrong genes, it could lead to uncontrolled cell division and ultimately to cancer. So there are actually a, a lot of well-established genes where we'll look at methylation patterns to, to look at the development of cancers. And it's a well-established link that one of the greatest risk factors for cancer is age. But we also know that methylation patterns actually decrease through time with age as well. So making that link of age is associated with cancer, as well as methylation patterns are associated with age and cancer as well. So there's like this triangle relationship that, that can occur. And part of the hope is being, can this guide treatments, can this guide preventative measures to try and decrease the incidence or the seriousness of certain cancers. Wow. So are you saying that, so it may be that age is actually just a proxy for problems with methylation because as we get older, we have problems with having the same methylation patterns. And so it, it's not so much age, but our epigenetic expressions. It, it definitely plays into it. It is definitely a, a major contributor, obviously with age, other things can go awry as well that could play into cancer. And that's the importance of uh, trying to ensure your, your health is as uh, is, is optimal as possible. But yeah, part of it is, yeah, it's uh, people have been, they've looked at methylation patterns of people in their 20s and people that are centenarians as well. And their methylation patterns are different. And so that's when we knew that it does change through time. The other, the other factor on this is there's different lifestyle factors that impact methylation as well. Smoking, BMI, alcohol consumption have been shown to change methylation patterns across the genome and different genes too. So 
it truly is like a, a mark that is influenced by different lifestyle and genetic factors. So that's why there's been so much work and study in this area. Wow. So how much, well, actually, before we get to how much control we have, I just want to know, when it comes to, for example, heart disease, vascular disease, do you have any idea how much of a role epigenetics plays versus genetics? Yeah, so there's been a lot of studies in both of those areas. And just in terms of genetics, there are well-established genes that if you have mutations in those genes, you are predisposed to a higher risk of different cardiac conditions, could be adult onset, even uh, pediatric cardiac diseases. And the field of epigenetics in cardiac health is definitely less studied than genetics, but there is a good body of evidence that really the main links that have been done now is that in patients with different cardiac conditions, of just reading a paper about heart failure, they have seen that there's differences in your gene expression, right, for patients that have undergone that versus patients that are controls and habit. And they've seen differences in the epigenetics in those patients. There has been associations. It's not as strong as if you're unmethylated in this gene, you're going to have heart disease. But like many of these things that are multifactorial, it's definitely part of the story with the epigenetics and the genetics and the lifestyle factors coming into play for some of these adult cardiac conditions. Hmm. There's been some great twin studies in terms of looking at their methylation patterns, right? Identical twins, by definition, have the exact same DNA, but they end up being different and developing different conditions. And the theory being because we see that it's other factors that are coming into play. The epigenetics has been one of those areas that, that people have keyed in on for further study. Again, making the link in terms of their outcomes, in terms of who develops heart disease and who hasn't. Not, I'm not as familiar about specific studies that have shown in pinpointing the reason. The theory these days is that there is a contributory factor of the epigenetics potentially being a part of the outcomes that happen, be it heart disease or another condition that occur even in the background of having the same genetics. It emphasizes the point that these things are complex, but the epigenetic component is definitely one of those factors, if not one of the key factors that can really ensure that, again, at its baseline, ensuring that genes are expressed the way that they're meant to be expressed. And if those go awry due to methylation patterns being altered with lifestyle or sporadically just through things that we potentially may not be able to control that can have the downstream impacts in terms of heart disease. There's been studies even in diabetes and other thought to be multifactorial diseases and looking at that epigenetic link. Yeah. I remember seeing a study, I think it's from well over a couple of decades ago, but it was about prostate cancer. And they took a bunch of men with prostate cancer, they biopsied the prostate, checked their genetic code and expression, and then stuck them on on just intensive lifestyle changes. When they checked them again with biopsy and doing that same thing, it was a whole different way that these genes were getting expressed. It was really mind-blowing. Yeah, I think just hitting at the theme of inevitability of stuff or what things you have control over, 
I think one of the, the intrigue of epigenetics is that there is some sense of control there. We do know that it's impacted by lifestyle factors and you're trying to maintain, right, some homeostasis, some equilibrium in terms of your body and some of these other lifestyle factors can impact your epigenetics, which will ultimately throw things off of its equilibrium. There are very specific examples where we know that if the methylation is affected at this particular gene, it's diagnostic for particular conditions. So there have been, there are concrete examples. Now, again, for some of these conditions that are thought to be multifactorial, it's more of as a risk, as you think about your risk factors, maybe you have genetic risk, maybe you have lifestyle risk. And if you add epigenetic risk on top of that, then you're just getting multiple strikes against you that increases that likelihood of a, a bad health outcome. So it's good to think about again, epigenetics and methylation in terms of your health and what you can control and thinking about some of these lifestyle factors that could impact it negatively. Yeah, that's a good point because it seems like these negative lifestyle factors, smoking, poor diet, all that, you had a double whammy, right? We all, most people realize that if they smoke a cigarette, that's going to do direct harm. But then it sounds like it's not only doing the harm that we can see and we can imagine, but it's doing harm with our genetic code and how that's even getting expressed. And so a double whammy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, again, some of these things where you have genetic predisposition, there's a reason if you have a genetic predisposition for a cardiac marker that doesn't necessarily mean that you will get the disease. Mm -hmm. Some of it's unexplained, but some of it is, again, it, it puts a strike against you, but when you accumulate those other strikes may or may not be in some of your control. Again, some of it is sporadic and occurs, but there is this concept of the genetic predisposition. There's a reason you don't get the condition right away, right? It takes time and other events occurring for it to happen. The problem being again, that you have one strike against you off the bat and have control over, but having the sense that maintaining the, the lifestyle thinking that it could impact epigenetics, it could ensure that gene expression is being controlled as best as possible for downstream processes, can only help at least ensuring your risk stays at what it was before, instead of just continuing to accumulate additional risk through time. Yeah, I just got the image as you were describing that of being born with kind of a giant boulder on the edge of a cliff, and then that's the one strike. And then you can do other things to try and push it more off the cliff, or you can stop pushing it. <laughs> yeah. The, the more you read about like genomics and epigenomics, first of all, it's a new era where we can just, we can sequence people's entire genomes. We can look at their entire epigenome and we're learning a lot. And the more we learn, it's almost, it almost seems amazing that we are, have as many healthy individuals as we do. Just so many things can go wrong. It's just one letter change in your genome can change your entire trajectory of your life. And the same with epigenetics too, that again, some of these things we can't control. There, there's some inevitability there, but for us to make sure we understand the things that we can control. And I do a lot of work in trying to make sure we make diagnoses and we detect things earlier so we can intervene earlier. And in addition to 
the epigenetics and what they're doing. Can we use these markers to detect things earlier, right? For things like cardiac disease and cancer. Unfortunately for cardiac disease, if sometimes it's too late, the cardiac arrest has happened, right? For cancer, the diagnosis is too late. You're in stage three or stage four. Can we diagnose and use these tools, genomic tools available to to make those diagnoses earlier so we can intervene earlier too is another concept of epigenomics and genomics that is another area that we can push on to hopefully improve human health. Are you able to touch on more of how it actually works that something we do in our lifestyle goes all the way down to our genetic code and its expression? Yeah, that's a good question in terms of what further details I can provide there. In terms of like our methylation, right? It sits in creating these methyl groups and maintaining these methyl groups is it, it's all part of a pathway. So it's different genes working together, feeding into each other to ensure that these methyl groups are being distributed. Now, these methyl groups have to come from somewhere, right? And a lot of those intermediates from methylation are actually coming from our diet. A lot of these genes and proteins, a, a lot of them are fed through the body and through our metabolism. There's some base level that the pathway needs to ensure that the process continues to happen. And it's not just ensuring the methylation groups are there, it's maintaining it, right? Cells are dividing and you're needing to ensure that those same methylation patterns stay. Now, if you're suffering some deficiency in the pathway, either you don't have the methyl groups to, to add or it's not at the quantity it needs, or there's a mutation in one of those genes that is the enzyme's not working as efficiently as it should, or it's working too fast and faster than it should. You could imagine that methylation pathway now is errors are occurring, right? You're not getting the methylation spots that you need as your cells are dividing. That's how the diet aspect plays into this. Again, the diet indirectly through metabolism is supplying methyl groups for us to ensure that's it's happening. like the raw material. Yeah, exactly. That's why the diet is so crucial in terms of this. And I'll say like for some of the lifestyle factors and the impacts it has is a lot of the thinking and some of the studies have been like with alcohol and smoking centers around like oxidative stress. And what the oxidative stress can do again is it's impacting the way genes are potentially functioning, you're getting too much of a gene or not enough of a gene, and potentially that could play into a, into a methylation pathway or another maintenance pathway. There's so many genes that are involved in methylation that just alteration in one gene can potentially feed into all these other genes and this interconnected pathways that are out there. So right. yeah, I, I, the but, regulation of some genes is dependent on other genes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it can get to be a vicious circle in some of these things. And again, highlights that there are so many genes and events that are happening just inside our bodies that we're not aware of. And if things go off kilter, off equilibrium, that can end up having downstream, negative downstream effects. Yeah. Are you able to tell more, tell us more, elaborate on how oxidative stress is screwing things up? Yeah. So. Really the way I would classify it, and it's definitely not my area of expertise, is that the accumulation of oxidative stress can really impact metabolism 
pathways. Like some of my work in my PhD was, it was all tying into folic acid and the methylation pathways. And what we were seeing was certain mothers that had babies with birth defects, they actually had higher oxidative stress markers. And, and so again, it wasn't the cause, but a risk factor adding to some of the different pieces there. And, and so it doesn't get as much into the mechanism, but that association of oxidative stress and uh, adverse outcomes is out there in, in multiple places. And I would say the main piece is that it, it's causing alterations in these pathways. It's impacting, again, enzymes and their function, either upregulating or downregulating them with the accumulation of oxidative stress. Yeah, I don't know. It's not the most detailed answer there, but that's some of the associations I've been uh, aware of or involved in. It sounds like it makes maintenance far more difficult. And yeah. like you were mentioning before, it, those enzymes created by other genetic expressions are integral in maintaining the right genes turned off and the right genes turned on. What about yeah. things like physical activity? Any ideas on why just sitting around on the couch 24 hours a day is might be bad. <laughs> I guess outside of the, the obvious stuff, it, it ties into oxidative stress. I, I think increased BMI leads to increased mm. oxidative stress that's accumulating. And again, BMI is associated not just with heart disease, it's associated with cancer. It's associated with other adverse health outcomes. And Again, one of the risk factors of how that happens is increase in BMI potentially leading to altered methylation patterns that's ultimately contributing to causing some of these conditions. Again, some of these lifestyle factors, as you think about how does it get from here to heart disease, I think one of the ways to maybe think about it is that the epigenetics being changed as a result of either through oxidative stress or just altered methylation because you're introducing an adverse condition to the body and it impacts our genes and our epigenetics. And then ultimately, as genes get altered expression, that's what can result in the conditions we're talking about. It's some alteration within our processes, be it for cancer, uncontrolled cell division, for cardiac conditions potentially increase in cardiac enzymes and things like that, that can ultimately lead to these conditions there. There is that intermediate area and thinking about the, the epigenetic piece contributing to what happens downstream. Okay. So it sounds like just by generally messing up what cells are able to do, how they're able to heal, maybe how quickly they die or turn into scar tissue or how well they can, the system can put down inflammation or create inflammation where needed, all that gets messed up. And so there's a variety yeah. of different pathways where genetic expression makes a difference. So that's interesting. How do we use this information? How do we actually take what we're learning now and turn it into treatments? I'm sure there's lots of pharmaceutical treatments, but are there any besides <laughs> that, is there anything that we can look at and say, oh, yeah, well, we know this, so you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. I can take the example of cancer detection and how this can impact it because that's the work I'm doing now is actually involved in a company that has developed a test for early detection of pancreatic cancer, purely using methylation marks in the body. What the test does, and this is again based off of 
a lot of the work that kind of we've been talking about is what occurs when we develop tumors is it actually sheds small pieces of DNA into our blood. And so we've been able to develop a test to capture those small fragments called cell-free DNA and uh, look at the methylation marks in those fragments and being able to look at those patterns of methylation, make a determination if this pattern looks like a patient with pancreatic cancer or does this pattern look like a patient without pancreatic cancer. And so uh, we've been able to develop this diagnostic tool to be able to detect pancreatic cancer from a blood draw where before you would need to go in and get diagnostic imaging. And typically you don't get imaging, right? Unless there is uh, a real issue, there's symptoms. And yeah. uh, with pancreatic cancer, if you have symptoms, there's a high likelihood that you're in the late stages already yeah. being stage three or stage four. And the outcomes are, are, very, are very severe for that. So that's one particular example of, we know, what are altered methylation patterns or methylation patterns in this disease state? Now we're trying to develop a tool to be able to pick those up, detect things earlier. And that's one type of cancer. The thought is you can do it for other cancers. And I could easily see that translating potentially to other conditions, right? If, if we focus on early detection, potentially looking at methylation marks and other disease states. I know uh, a lot of the focus on the pod here is in cardiac disease states. I could see trying to apply some of those same studies there. Are there particular methylation marks that are predictive or distinctive for different cardiac conditions that we could deploy easier detection tools for us to look at things and diagnose things quicker? Well, then I have to ask the question, how accurate are these things and what's the danger of false positives and false negatives? Yeah, I, I think that's the right questions to ask. And when you develop a test like this, what is the sensitivity and specificity? So for our test, we wanted to make sure it was a high specificity test. In for our particular assay, it's a 98% specificity and the sensitivity good. is around 7% for the sensitivity. Now, again, you could drop the specificity and increase the sensitivity, but that has other impacts, right, in terms of more false positives and, and what, what is the clinical community and what is the patient community telling you in terms of what is the level of risk we're willing to accept as part of an assay like this. I spoke about our company, but there's a lot of companies doing work like this. You might start hearing about it, about early detection for cancer, and a lot of them are looking at methylation as part of their test, because methylation has been shown to be the most sensitive marker, molecular marker, genomic marker for predicting cancer or being able to diagnose cancers. So there's a lot of that's coming out into the mainstream. And so it's important for people to ask those questions and, and they know what they're getting into when ordering a test like this. Yeah. So even though epigenetics has lots of different mechanisms, I assume, it sounds like methylation is the most reliable one looking at that. Yeah, I think that's the one that's the most well studied. There are other things that, again, you could do separate pods in, in each of these different areas. You'll hear about like histone modification, like chromatin remodeling. And again, they're epigenetic because it's stuff that's happening on top of the DNA without changing the DNA code, but they 
they do influence gene expression as well. But methylation is a little bit more straightforward to be able to detect, to be able to look at methylation patterns versus those. But again, there's a lot of work in other areas of epigenetics as well. I don't want people to come away thinking that it's just methylation. There are other areas, but methylation's the one that's the most well-studied and the one that's the easiest to to implement into the laboratory. So that's why a lot of the work's been done Mm. there. And you're starting to see, again, some of those studies and tests being done, trying to look at methylation in different disease states. Okay. So we shouldn't just think that is the primary mechanism by which all these things work. It's just the one that is the easiest to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most body of work is there. Yeah. Okay. And right now, just to go back to what you said a while ago, that test that you mentioned earlier for the pancreatic cancer, just so people are clear, it had a lower sensitivity, which means it won't pick up on all the cancers, but a really high specificity, which means if somebody is told that they have pancreatic cancer, they have pancreatic cancer. Yeah. A very low false positive rate. So if it's yeah detected as positive, we're highly confident in that and in that result. And yeah, it's a, it's an intriguing approach again, that people are looking at across the board, different academic and commercial companies, but it just highlights the importance of epigenetics. This is again, early detection, but we talked about other potentially preventative measures. It's always better if you can prevent these things from happening, even compared to early detection. But I think they're all worthy areas for us to, to invest in with the ultimate goal of trying to improve patient outcomes. Yeah. There's early detection and then there's early reduction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is always best, I think. Yeah. Is there any good. Di- the further upstream we take the story, right, it's always better. Take it all the way in utero. Okay. <laughs> take it. Or maybe even before that, is there, can we take it even further back than that? Are there things that people do before they have children that affect what happens to their children? Before people have children in the genetics world, yes, people do do testing to see what genetic risk may be. There are parents carriers for different genetic conditions prior to conception so that they're aware of that information if they wanted to pursue prenatal genetic testing, things like that, depending on their belief system or their philosophies on things. So those tools are all available. I know some people, when they present genomics topics, they talk about the concept or the phrase I've seen is like from the womb to the tomb, there's this genetic information, epigenetic information that we have that we want to be assessing over the course of our life. There's things that we're interested in early that maybe aren't as much interest later in your life. When is it makes sense for us to look at genomics and epigenomics at some regular interval, analyzing those? There's like huge study. This is in the genetics world where we're looking at sequencing babies' genomes at birth and looking to see if they have genetic predisposition for different conditions. The thought is we're going to diagnose some kids with conditions they haven't presented with, but we can intervene early before things happen. And there's a lot of work. The UK is doing a huge study of 100,000 kids doing this. That That's out there. And various studies even in the US happening to even at my old institution at Rady starting to look at sequencing babies at birth, trying to identify babies that have 
genetic conditions that haven't presented and they don't present at birth, but you're able to intervene and there's treatments available. That's great for finding out things before they come to a head. Are there any things that mothers and fathers do ahead of time that when they create their baby have effects on that child? I'm thinking back to things I've heard about with the Dutch starvation, Dutch hunger. Yeah. I don't want to call it hunger games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there definitely is. It, it ties back a little bit to what we talked about, obviously, in terms of the folic acid. But this gets into interesting areas, just like the maternal stress, things like that being associated with adverse outcomes. Now, obviously, pregnancy is a stressful event and can be more stressful than others. The interesting thing about epigenetics, there's the lifestyle, but there's also, again, some of the work in terms of some of the behavioral things too, like the stress or this extreme example in terms of the famine, it really did lead to increase in adverse health outcomes that and potentially epigenetics playing a a role in that. So I I do think it's important for people to keep in mind that in addition to the lifestyle factors, just this taking like the holistic look at it, potentially impacting body processes like epigenetics. It won't impact changing letter changes in your genome, but potentially these methylation marks being impacted by them. There has been association studies out there. All comes back to methylation, but it sounds like (laughs) we're still in the the infancy of kind of discovering where the power of genetics and intersection of epigenetics lay and what we can do about it. And there's all these tests coming about. So that's good. If we have to leave people with a message so they can look at themselves and what message would you leave people with? Yeah, I I would say that I hope we highlighted some examples where things that you can do are directly impacting your epigenetics, which ultimately impacts genes and proteins in your bodies. Thinking about different lifestyle factors and things in moderation really can help. There are things in our life that we can't prevent or can't control, but there are aspects that we can. And I think people should feel empowered. There is good science being done to continue to tease us apart. But in the meanwhile, we should take the knowledge that we have when people talk about things like different lifestyle stuff to do. It's not just talk and hype. There is true science behind it too and giving concrete examples of it. People can consider that as they're thinking about what decisions they're making with their health and how it can impact your life downstream and hopefully leading to a longer and healthier life. That sounds fantastic. What size impact do you think it really makes about our lifestyle? and influencing our epigenetics. Is this kind of a drop in the bucket and, oh, it'd be nice, but, eh. or is this, I don't know, a giant splash in the bucket? I think potentially it's a giant splash in the bucket. If you talk about, and we really deliver on the things we're talking about, I, I would emphasize with people, it's still, some of this stuff is in the early phases, but if we're talking about prevention and early detection and treatment, really talking about impacts in all these different areas. But in, in terms of what we know now, we still have a lot to learn, but we have established there is this scientific biological basis of being able to impact what's happening 
in our body and the real tangible things. So I'm more optimistic than a drop in the bucket. Uh, it's going to have more impact and being an optimist, I'm hoping it'll be even more than we're projecting. But I think it's important for us to make sure we're being honest and thoughtful about what the impacts are now versus what it might be in the future. Fantastic. Optimism is good for your health. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been enlightening. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's summarize. Epigenetics has a variety of mechanisms, but the one we focused on here was methylation. The methyl molecule can adhere itself to DNA in such a way that it changes how much, if any, that gene will be able to do its thing. That may be bad, that may be good. More research is being done in this field to figure out the details of what exactly is happening. Also in development are diagnostics and treatments based on this knowledge. What this field of study underlines is that we are not beholden to our genes. Our behavior changes our bodies at a genetic level, essentially making a different body. We can use that to our advantage for ourselves and our kids. Some of the changes are easier than others. We didn't explicitly talk about it here, but epigenetics is where our genes meet our environment. So things like safety, security, access to resources, pollution levels, all play a role in our health. That can be very hard to change. But perhaps this research will change the priorities of our society. Dr. Chowdhury was optimistic on the trajectory of these studies on people's health, but I'm even more optimistic. That's because right now on the market, available now, are a few fantastic treatments that exert their influence via epigenetics, amongst other mechanisms. They're heavily evidence-based, have amazing safety profiles, and are off patent, so they're cheap. They include exercise, restorative sleep, social connection, stress management, and a whole food plant-based diet. If you need help with instituting these effective lifestyle changes in your real world life, set up a free appointment at cprhealthclinic.com. Remember, the way you live can save your life.